All right, we're in Second Peter, chapter 1. We're looking at verse number 8 and 9 tonight. Now, this is part of our morning series. Jude and Peter wrote at a similar time, similar situation, and as you're about to discover, similar words. Chapter 2 of Peter, here, Second Peter, is almost the exact same thing that Jude wrote about in all those verses we covered this morning. If you were to read this, you would see the angels being cast out. You'd see Sodom and Gomorrah. You'd see all these uh, different references, but a little more enhanced in Peter's letter. And uh, it caused some people to wonder, did Peter copy from Jude, or did Jude copy from Peter? They assumed that, that one of them copied from the other. And I could at least tell you this much. Peter does have much more information than Jude did, comparing those two passages. But Peter also said, these things are coming, whereas Jude said, they're here. Which suggests to me some sort of an order that maybe Peter wrote before that. Anyway, why would Peter the Apostle be borrowing from somebody else? That's another thought in the line. And and the other ones that go with that, I think that... Uh, um, since they're both inspired by the Holy Spirit, I'm not surprised. And so, with all that considered, I don't think they had to borrow from each other. And if they did, uh, Jude gave you the smaller list of the details that Peter gives us. So, what are we doing? We're going to do chapter 1 of Peter. We're doing technically chapter 2 because of Jude. And then we're going to highlight that, and then we'll get into chapter 3. And so we're working side by side with these two passages. And I think they're really fun to put together. Peter is addressing the believer personally, going right to the needs of the believer. As you know, when Jude wrote the first couple of verses, he said, I really wanted to talk to you about our common salvation, but... This pressing need has come upon us, and I need to address it. And he's talking about those who have crept in. Well, Peter spends a lot more time on, this is what you need to be in light of this day. So, our evening approach is more personal. It goes right to us. I mean, it's like a mirror right in front of me when I speak in these words, because uh, they, are, they are directed to the believer. And is the believer maturing in Christ? That's what Peter is emphasizing, especially as we started this. We went to chapter 3, and we, ended, we started with the ending in verse number 17 and 18. And verse 18 is the command, grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is a call for all of us right now to be doing Growing, 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 growing. And it's expected of us as believers. And I'm hoping that that's where we are, that we're growing. So when we got into chapter number one, and we've been on this for several weeks now, Peter's writing, and in the flow of the context, in verse number one, he says, really, we believers are all on that same equal playing field. If you want to address it this way, concerning growth. He's writing to those who have received a kind of faith the same as ours. What Peter had by faith 
and what challenge he was given to grow, you have it too. Peter was not unique in the relationship he had with the Lord any more than Paul was or any other believer were saved by the blood of Christ and were called to be like him, right? Every apostle had that too. And so as Peter begins, he's not standing up like some platform looking down at you or looking down at me and saying, uh, you guys need to grow up. I know what it is. I'm, I'm there. Peter's not saying that. Peter's on the same level as you and me. The same kind of faith, the same kind of need to grow. And so we started right there in verse number one. And verse number two, we saw his desire. Oh, he says. And he says it in such a way that um, sometimes our translations don't pick this up. But oh, that grace and peace may be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He keeps bringing up that same Room we have to go into to grow in our knowledge of Christ. We need it. And he says, oh, I wish you had that desire. I wish I had that desire. Oh, that grace and peace be multiplied. May it grow. May it grow. May it grow. When he gets to verse 3 and 4, he says it's possible because his divine power, that's God's divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. What are you missing? Nothing. You have everything. Isn't that a nice word? Everything pertaining to life. Pertaining to godliness. God has given that to you. His divine power has granted to you, to us, Everything. And notice, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Again, he brings up that point of the knowledge we can have of Christ. It's through his knowledge that we've been given this. So, verse 5 through 7. There's a command in verse 5. And there's very few commands in this book. But verse 5 through 7, there's a command to grow. And it's in this sense, For this reason, applying all diligence in your faith, Supply, moral excellence. Supply, supply. You might have a different word in a different translation. But the idea is make room for this to grow. You have been given everything you need. Now make room for it so that it might grow. So that it can grow in its fullness. In the full knowledge of Christ again, he wants us to grow. And notice the different things that we are to grow in. He started a list. Uh, faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, verse 6, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, verse 7, and love. Almost like one of those fruit of the Spirit lists, right? We are to grow in those things. Not select one or two or the top four. And say, I'm going to grow in those, and those other ones are just too challenging. So, if I just do the majority, I'm doing good, right? Or, I think I'll just start on number one, and after I get that one right, I'll move on to number two. That won't work either. I have a book I still have yet to read. I've read the first half of the first chapter, and that was about eight years ago. And you say, what's wrong with that guy? <laughs> Just slow reader, huh? 
But it was talking about prayer. And uh, R.A. Torrey wrote it called How to Pray. And the illustration in chapter number one right away was a description of sleepless prayer. About the verse that tells us to be constant in prayer. And he describes that as a sleepless prayer. And asks the question, have you ever missed sleep because you were praying? Now, we've seen the example on the other side a lot of times, haven't we? Not only personally, but even in Scripture. Peter and James and others have that problem. We know that. But I said, you know what? I don't think I've ever gone a whole night through without sleep because I was praying. And I thought, well, maybe I need to practice that or at least work on that. And I figured I wasn't going to read the rest of the book till I got that part right. So it still sits there. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever read it at this rate. But uh, sometimes we do that with a list like this. We say, well, you know, these are great things. And I'm going to start with faith. And once I get faith all right, then I'm going to move on to the next one. But that's not what this verse, this set of verses are allowing for us. All of them are to be growing. Simultaneously. It's a process where inside, it's almost like this, inside of one, the other one grows. Inside of that one, another one grows. Inside of that one, another one grows. And they're all developing together. And yet, when you go through the list, boy, it challenges every part of us, doesn't it? Perseverance? How are we at that? That's one thing. He didn't say patience, thankfully. But he did say godliness. He did say moral excellence. He did say faith. He said brotherly kindness. He did say love. The question is, do you know what those all those are? And I would challenge you this way, because we didn't go through the list and work it all out and define them all and say, this is what it is, this is what it is. But if this is expected of you, do you want to know what that is? And I'm going to leave this challenge with you. Go and study it up to see what it is you're supposed to be. All right? The pastor could tell you. But the pastor is not going to tell you, because it's all part of the growing process, that you invest in learning what's expected of you. But just my point to note, in verse 5 through 7, they need to be there. They need to be growing. That's what we're called to do. Now, with all that said, verse number 8 and 9 shows the results. All these things put together, verse 8 and 9 is the evidence that it's happening. Alright? That's what we're going to look at tonight. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Now, there's a contrast between the two. Verse number 9 is very positive. Verse number 10 uses a negative approach. And both are saying the same thing. One saying, this is, this is what it looks like. And this, the other one is saying, this is what it doesn't look like. All right? But I want to start with something I think is really, really important. Because if we were all able just to say, let's pull out our Greek translations here. Uh, look at this verse. Verse number 8 does not have an if in it. 
Our translations many times will put an if there or a potential concept like, uh, well, this should be this or whatever. It's actually spoken in the present tense. It's a reality. It's the indicative mood. It's a reality. My, my Greek scholars would say, oh, yes, you don't want to miss that on a quiz. Uh, it's that important that I have to stress this to you. What Peter is saying is this. These qualities that are in verse 5 through 7 are yours. He's not hoping that you might find them or gain them. They're yours. That makes a huge difference in what I want to share with you right now. Because these belong to you. Do you have something out in your shed that's been there for many, many years and you've never touched it? Maybe you don't have a shed. Maybe it's in your garage. Maybe it's in a storage unit. Maybe it's got uh, a wheel on the front and a seat on the back and you sit on it and you do one of these things while you're watching TV or something like that and you say, oh, that exercise bike. I got that for my New Year's resolution, right? Where is it today? Oh, never mind. But the question is this. How many things do we possess that we do not use? How many things do we have that we don't put into operation? We could start a list. I just randomly threw one out there. But the point is that the things that you saw in verse 5 through 7 are yours already. They're yours. Those qualities are yours. It's not a question if they are yours. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, they are yours. Because this is what God is doing in you. He's making you to be like this. These are qualities that match Him. And isn't His role to make us like Christ? So He's not saying, okay, now go out and find somewhere Maybe they're at a Christian bookstore or something. Go buy some of this stuff so that you can grow in it. You, you already got the necessary equipment here. It's already yours. It belongs to you. How important is that in our conversation? Remember what he said earlier? You have everything pertaining to life and godliness? Do we really believe that? If so, then these things are yours. Because this is what life and godliness looks like in these verses. They're already yours. You have them. God has given to you all these things. But what's our problem? Like some things. We're not giving them the exercise they need. We're not practicing. We're not growing. We possess them, but they're not moving differently. They're the way that they used to be. We've got problems, I know. When we compare our human life to what is given to us in Scripture, this is an amazing thing. What a difference it is from the day when you didn't know Christ. Did you have these qualities when you were not a believer? Godliness? No. These things were not yours then. You were made in the image of God, yes. But we had a huge problem. It's 
called the sin nature, and it dominated us. It dominated us in our thoughts and in our actions, in our conscience, in our desires. Every single part of us was so, so wrapped up in it, as Paul writes in Ephesians 3, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you walked around in that. That was the course of your life. You lived in it. You thought it. You followed it. You were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And then God steps in, right? Verse 4. I love Ephesians 2, 4. But God, rich in mercy, and because of His great love in which He loved us, even while we were yet sinners, we go on to passages like that, even while we were dead, He made us alive together with Christ. He made the change. You're different now because of Him, right? Yes? Uh Uh-huh. You have all these things because of Him. You see it? They're yours now. They've been given to you. It's kind of like when a baby's born. You look at the baby and you say, all the parts are there. Isn't that wonderful? That's so exciting. There was a trait in in uh, my wife's family uh, years and years ago that the children were being born with less than ten toes. Uh, my father-in-law on that side of the family, he had he had nine toes, and my wife had eight toes, which the way they were developed and stuff, it was kind of like that. And so, guess what we always looked at first when the baby was born? We'd count the toes. Are they all there? Do, 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 do. Ten! That was so exciting. Ten toes. All the kids have ten toes. Just so you know, it's it's really exciting. Although... We don't know what's going to happen with their kids. <laughs> Abby's got one due in July. We're so excited. And um, Philip has seven of them now. And so we're, we're just looking forward to seeing a new baby. It's a girl coming, we've been told. Abby's going to have a girl. So we're going to count toes. It's just our thing. But when babies are born, they have all those parts. They have hearts and lungs, and they have arms, and they have muscles, and they have, you know, brains and eyes and mouths and everything else. But what do they need? To grow. As a Christian, you're given everything. But your need is to grow. And Peter's just saying, you have these qualities. He's not saying, if you have them, he's saying, you have those. And what a difference this is than what we were before. You're born again, right? As those who are born again, you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. That is a fascinating study to see the difference he has made. But he made it for you. And so when we're going through this passage, don't say, this is for somebody else. This is, this is something I'd expect in a Pastor Bob, or there's something I'd expect in this or that. This is you. You have these things. They're yours. They belong to you. It's, a matter of fact, a participle in the way he's talking about a descriptive term. This is you. Right now, this is you. This is what you have in your hands. So, I could say it this way. There are no Christians that are handicapped in growth. We have no excuse to step back and say, I can't, because we're missing a part. 
we're missing a piece. We can't do that, can we? Just so you know, it's convicting to me too. I read this and I hear this and I say, ooh, uh, yes, that's a reminder I need. It's mine. It's mine to grow. And then if you say, Peter, you're kind of being a little, you know, straightforward here and it's uncomfortable for us because we kind of put these down as optional when now we find out they're not. And then he adds another element to the pressure. He says, and they're increasing. Not if they are increasing, but he says they are increasing. That too is a present tense. Is Peter assuming too much in saying that? They are increasing. The ones he's addressing, he assumes, are maturing. He assumes that they are maturing. It's a different way to talk to somebody. If they're having a struggle, and they're, they're, they don't have confidence in what they're doing, and they're doing something wrong, it's one way to say, you know, that's all wrong. You're doing that all wrong. Well, they know that. How do you feel after somebody, on top of your own feelings about knowing you're doing it wrong, somebody comes and tells you you're doing it wrong? You say, oh. That's like a double whammy. It's hard when people recognize that you've done it wrong. But what if somebody comes up to you and says, yeah, this is, a, this is wrong, this is wrong. But you know what? You have the equipment to do it right. Or what you have been doing is, is right, but you're just doing it in the wrong way. There are ways to talk to people to lift them up. We could, we could blast people with the straightforward address. That's wrong. And more times than not, that leaves us a little deflated. But as believers, are we supposed to edify one another in love? Build one another up? Watch the way we use our words to say, you know what? You have what it takes, and it's growing. So, keep going. That sounds a little better than, you have what it takes, now what's the matter with you? There's a difference in the approach. And you've been there, some of you have been teachers and such, and you know you can work better at times with students by showing them, you have these qualities, you're not lacking that, build on it, build on it. This is Peter's approach. He says, you have these qualities, and they are increasing. Now, why would they be increasing if we're not actively doing it? Because you're not the only one in the process of making it work. Who else is causing these things to happen? Who, who resides right inside here? The Holy Spirit. And what is his job? To make us like Christ. Is he going to fail? No. He will not fail. He is doing his work right now. In Philippians it said, God is at work in you but to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you may say, is he doing that right now? Yes, he is. Now, I confess there are times when we're not very cooperative. We're, we're not participating like we ought to. But that doesn't mean God sat down and said, well, I'm just going to wait till they're ready and then I'm going to get started. God is at work in you already. 
the Holy Spirit's at work in you already. Do you know Jesus is praying for you? Is he not our high priest? Does he intercede on your behalf? What do you think he prays for? That you just have a good day? Do you think that maybe he prays for the Father's will to be accomplished in you? Think about it. Read John chapter 17 sometime and see what is is he prays about concerning you. He knows that you're in this world. He knows this world is ungodly. And he talks to his father about that. Don't you want to know what he's praying for? That's what he's been doing. He's praying for you. I think that there's an awful lot going on right now. Even if you're sitting idle, God has not stopped So Peter can literally say, these are increasing. Because he knows God's at work, not because you're active. But see, there's something in that that prompts our thinking to say, well, then I'm going to have to get busy on my side. Because if that's happening, don't you want to be part of it? If somebody says, they're increasing in you, you say, oh, well, then there's hope then there is something going on. I need to be part of this. That's quite an a approach that lifts up the person and puts her arm around them and it says, let's go, let's go. This is where it's going and it's moving already. Let's get part of the process. So make room for these things. They're going to grow. They're going to grow. Make them greater than they were before. Augment them. That's one of the words here is increasing. Augmenting. Now, I, I, I don't know all musical terms very much, but I do know when you're playing a chord and it calls for an augment, you're adding another finger to it. Maybe more. I think of that thing, that, uh, that great uh, fugue that they made for a pipe organ. You know the one I'm thinking of. It's, it just goes on and on. I can't even think of the one. Uh, I think Bach made it. One of those very impressive pipe organ pieces. And the whole start is like, he's hitting every single, every single key on the, on the keyboard there. It's like, how many fingers does he have? Just, and it just gets louder and it's building and you can feel that. That's the kind of concept of swelling in sound. Now you're going to have to figure out which fugue I'm talking about. But um, he's just building all this sound in that music. And that's the concept here of the Christian life. Sometimes they say, I'm going to narrow it down so I can concentrate on one of these. And God says, no, let's do them all. He said, but I don't know if I can do that, Lord. And let's go back to our theme. God is able, Right? This is his work in you. This is what he's doing in you. We submit to that. We say, okay, Lord, this is what you're doing. I'm going to do that with you. I'm going to be part of that. I'm going to make room for that growth. They're designed to grow and grow rapidly, grow largely. These things I want to. Now, if these are yours, and you know they are, And they are increasing. And you know they are. Let's flip to the opposite side of this. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why didn't he say they render you useful and fruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? I say, well, Peter, why did you say neither and nor? Why did you use useless and unfruitful to describe these things? He's talking about what you're set down to be. And he's using negative terms. It's a very mild way uh, of presenting something to say, you know, you're really the opposite of this. You're the opposite of this. But let's look at the two words and see what he's talking about. He says, these things are yours, they're increasing, so it renders you as one who is not unemployed. That's the word, useless. Unemployed. Not working. Inactive. Unprofitable. The word hollow comes from this or idle, yielding no return. In other words, these things are in you, and they're growing, and they will, they will be productive. They will be active. They will yield return, because you are not unemployed. You are not unemployed. And you are not unfruitful. Bearing no fruit. You are, you are not a non-working one who is producing nothing, in other words. What's the phrase? The one who doesn't work doesn't what? Eat. God, who has given to us everything, has designed us that we not be inactive. Just think about that for a minute. We're not designed to be inactive. We're not designed to be unfruitful. The whole chapter of John 15, Jesus talking to his disciples about the vine and the branch, right? And as I was thinking through that and studying through that concept, the vine and the branch, here is, here's a picture. Jesus and his disciples are in that upper room. And in that upper room, Jesus is, you know the story, just before his crucifixion, the washing of the feet, and he's talking to them, and they're having the meal together. And then finally, toward the end of that chapter there, he says, let us get up and go. And right around the end of chapter 14, it's like, let us get up and go. Now, between that and chapter 18, 18 says, now he entered into a garden, Garden of Gethsemane. So that means chapter 15 and 16 and 17 happened on his walk to the garden. All right? Now, if you could picture this in your mind, and maybe Jeff could do pretty good with this. Jeff, too. They've been over in that, those regions. But when you come out of the city, whichever gate they chose, it never said, he went down into the Kidron Valley. And you walk along the side, the wall of the great city as you're walking through that valley. And up there to the north a little bit, up there is a a rise that goes up the Mount of Olives is up in that area. Now there's all kinds of trees that can grow there. We talk about olive trees, but other trees as well, dates and things like that. I'm not even sure what all that was, but there there was uh, vegetation all along that valley as they're walking along it. 
And I just picture in my mind, as he's coming out and around there, that there might be part of a vineyard there. Somebody's trying to grow some grapes or something. And he walks over there. It's the time of year where there is no grapes on the vine. They kind of look hideous at that time of year. It's almost the time of year we are right now. All right? It was Passover season. That was sometime in March or April. And uh, so the vines are not producing. They're just brown sticks hanging on to, a, a, you know, the, the structure that they've grown up on. And he walks by, and I could almost picture him do this. Snap one off. And he says, I'm the vine, you're the branch. And he who is not attached, he doesn't produce fruit. Wouldn't that be vivid? Just to show it that way? If you're unattached, for apart from me... You can do nothing. Here in this picture, Peter is saying, you were not made to be unuseful, inactive, unemployed in the Christian life. You were not made to be unfruitful. Matter of fact, the whole point of the vine dresser and the vine and the branches, he came expecting fruit. And if he didn't see it, he did what he had to do to the plant to make it so it can By the way, that's not a chapter on salvation. That's a chapter on dependence. We are told to depend on him. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. And this is a picture. I I wonder if it's just in Peter's mind somewhat. As he's walking through the Christian life with us. And he says, you're not designed to sit there and do nothing. You are designed to grow and to be active and to be fruitful. That's what you're designed to be. And when you hear that, suddenly you say, oh, that's what God did. (laughs) And does not that make you want to be a part of that? Because he designed it so. He expects it so. There are so many examples, and our time's a little short, but I'm going to do this anyway. Go back to Revelation with me, chapter 2, chapter 2 and chapter 3. You know this passage. This passage is on the seven churches. And so many of these churches have compromised. They've compromised in one way or another. And the picture is that Jesus comes among them. He's walking through them. And he has expectations, doesn't he? He expects his church to be like something. And Scripture keeps telling us what we're supposed to be like, useful and fruitful. Uh, We want to boil it down to those two things. And so he comes to Ephesus, and he starts to write. He says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put them to the test, all who call themselves apostles, apostles, <laughs> and they are not, and they found you to be false. You have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But, I have this against you. He says, this is lacking. This is where we have a problem. And this is what I expect of you. You have left your first love. They have somewhere along the line compromised their intimate relationship with Christ. He says, I see it. I know it. 
This is one area that I am going to address with you, Church of Ephesus. You've compromised in your relationship with me. He goes to Smyrna, verse number 8. Well, no, jump down. Let's go to Pergamum. Let's go on to verse 12 for a minute. Verse 12. He starts to describe these folks. I know where you dwell, verse 13 says, where Satan's throne is. That'd be a tough place to live. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you. That's where Satan dwells. That's a tough place to live. But I have a few things against you, he says. I have a few things against you, too. You've compromised. What did you compromise? There are some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. These take sacrifice to idols and commit acts of immorality. They've compromised truth teaching. He says, I like a lot of things about you. You're tough. You're hanging in there. But you've compromised somewhere. And as one who wants to see you grow, we've got to fix this. He's addressing it. Thyra, Tyra, the next church in verse 18 through 29, long section. But verse number 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. They've compromised their authority and their leadership. He says, I'm walking through here and I see this is a part that needs to be fixed. And he's addressing it. Sardis in chapter 3, the first six verses. Verse number 2, guess what they did? You can see it in the first two words. Who do you tell, wake up? Sleepers! (laughs) They've fallen asleep, he says. You've fallen asleep. You, you've compromised your diligence. You've compromised your discipline. You've compromised your di- endurance. You fell asleep. And he says, we've got to work on that. Laodicea, everybody likes to talk about them. Laodicea, he's, he had something he wanted to address with them. Verse 15, chapter 3. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot. I will spit you out of my mouth because you say, I'm rich, have become wealthy, have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He addressed them in a, a pretty intense way. They have compromised their activity. They become satisfied with themselves. They're complacent. They lowered their standards. And what does he tell them to do in verse 19? Be zealous and repent. Be zealous, his cure to them. Ardent devotion. Desire earnestly. Be fervent. Keep on being fervent. It's a present tense command. Keep on being fervent. As he walked through these churches, he had expectations. And we note that there were failures that he identified. Is he wrong for addressing that? No. Why? Because that's his church. 
We are his people. Is he wrong to point out where we need help? No. That's what Peter's doing. He says, these qualities are yours. They're increasing. And that means you shouldn't be inactive and you shouldn't be unproductive. You should be useful and you should be bearing fruit. That is expected of what God has done. He expects it. And so if he came to your home tonight to walk through your uh, environment, your world, your life, is he going to say, let's work on that. Let's work on that. Or is he going to see a useful and a fruitful believer? That's Peter's address. He said, ooh, Peter. You're really hitting it right on that sore spot. Jeremiah will write about the... Back in the Old Testament, Jeremiah's got this picture in chapter 5. He's talking about leaders that are supposed to be godly leaders, and they're not godly leaders. I just want to read to you what he says about them. Jeremiah 5. Listen to these words in verse 30 and 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule on their own authority. Is that bad news? Oh, that's terrible news. The leaders are supposed to be spiritually minded and helping the people grow along. And he says, the priests and the prophets are doing it all wrong. And then he says this in verse 31. And my people love it so. Isn't that alarming? They love it so. They've gotten so used to that. That's what what they want. And what I'm trying to say to us here tonight from Peter's letter is, do we want to just settle down and say, I just like being unfruitful? I like being unuseful? We're not designed to be that way. But how easy is it to settle down in that? Our time is really short, but Peter goes on to say, and the reason this happens is because we forget. We forget what we are, what we're designed to be, and we forget something else. Verse number 9. He who lacks these qualities... And he's talking to believers, not unbelievers. You say, well, what's the deal? If they're not growing, if these are not happening, they're blind. They're short-sighted. They forgot. What did they forget? What's it say in verse 9? What did they forget? That they have been forgiven. That they have been purified from their former sins. Not that they forgot their former sins, but they forgot the cure for it. Isn't it interesting? I don't know how to put this. In the psychological way that we're wired, when we spend less time in God's Word, we look more and more at our faults. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe it's not you. Maybe it's somebody else. 
Matter of fact, the way Peter writes this in verse number 9 is kind of funny. He's talking in verse 8, you have this, you have this, you have this. Then verse number 9 he says, and this other guy, he, <laughs> so he kind of moves it away so it doesn't come so close with the point, right? He says, and this other guy, he's not growing. He's not doing what verse number 8 calls him to do. And so he's wandering around, and among other things, he forgot that he had been forgiven. So where is he wallowing? He's wallowing in his failures. And the more you're in there and rolling around, how likely are you going to feel useful or fruitful? Or how likely are you to say, yes, Lord, I want to grow? Because we have this thing, and I don't know if it's in you, like I said, but we have this thing that when things go downhill, we're like the ones who just pick up speed. We just keep rolling and rolling and rolling, and we keep adding to it. And this is the picture of one who has lost his bearings. Verse number 9 is talking about somebody who's blinded and short-sighted. The whole picture is that he is in a room full of smoke. Now, what we're taught to do is get out of there. If you're in a room that's absolutely full of smoke, it might suggest there's a problem, right? Like maybe a fire? Like danger, we're told to get on the floor because there's better air quality down there, or to cover our mouths with a handkerchief or something, which in the mass generation, we're okay with that now. But we, our goal is to get out. In this room, there are devices on the wall. Over there is one. It's a device that if the power shuts off, that light comes on. And over on this corner, we have an exit sign. And we have some down the stairs, above the doors and stuff. Is that just because nobody knows what a door is? We have to label, this is the door, this is the exit. But they're light up. When you're in the dark, in the smoke, you want something to say, this is the way, right? You want to know how to get out. What is this guy doing? He's not being what he's designed to be. So it's like a man, he's living in a room full of smoke. He doesn't know the dangers he's in. He could trip on anything. Immaturity is like that, by the way. You can hurt yourself a dozen different ways in a room full of smoke. You might even panic. There's a lot of things in this picture. You could add to that a little bit too. But he's in this room and he can't see his way out. And so what is his remedy? That smoke is stinging my eyes, so I'm going to do what? Close them. Did that help? He's already in a room full of darkness, and what does he do? He closes his eyes. <laughs> That's the picture. He's blind and short-sighted, and he's forgotten what God has already done for him. He's forgotten it. That's, that's a pathetic, a pathetic sight. When Peter's describing us as believers, he's saying, don't be like that. Don't be like that. That's that guy out there. Don't be like him. This guy who's wandering about, stumbling on things. He's blind. He's short-sighted. He's forgetful. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. Now, I'm not saying that that guy's lost his salvation. That's not what Peter said either. He's just plain forgot. And how many things do we forget theologically during the week? Of who we are? 
what God has done for us, what God expects of us, what God has a right to come in and say to our life, you know, that's lacking. How many things theologically, how many things spiritually, practically, have we forgotten during the course of a week because we're not growing? And then the things come around us, we get confused, we feel like we're getting consumed by smoke and darkness, and we can't find the exits, and we've forgot every single thing. Because panic does usually make us forget, too, doesn't it? There's two pictures for you. And I just simply say, I would prefer to find all of us in verse 8 rather than in verse 9. You see? That's the result of what he has done. What he has done for you is for you to grow, to be useful, for you to be profitable, to produce fruit. That's his design for us. And we don't want to be identified in verse number 9. This is a guy who stumbles everywhere. See the picture? That's what Peter has said to us here tonight. So, with all that said to you, where do we go from here? J. Vernon McGee said it so simple. I love listening to him and his words sometimes just right to the point. He says, we cannot produce fruit of the Spirit by sitting on the sidelines. I said, oh, that's just right to it, right? We cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit by sitting on the sidelines. Dig in. That's all I say. Dig in. He's given you all these things. Dig into it. Make it grow. Then you see usefulness. Then you see fruitfulness. How exciting that is. Okay. Chew on that this week. Next week we'll dive into verse number 10 and, and add some more bruises and welts and things that we go through in our Christian walk to make us more like Christ. Isn't that fun? Heavenly Father, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your consistent, faithful, loving way of shaping us to be like Christ, your Son. That we might resemble Him, who your heart's desire is for him to have a name which is above every name, and that will happen, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. And we want to do that from a heart that's overflowing with love for him. We long for that day when we see our Savior face to face. We long for that day when we shall be what you have designed us to be. We shall be like him. And we shall see him as he is. These things are exciting to us, and I hope they are. I hope, Lord, you build within us a stronger desire than we've had today to be more like him and to grow in our knowledge of him, that we might be found useful by him and fruitful for him, for his glory. Do your work in our lives as you promised to do, and may our hearts and our wills be in tune with it. Grow us, we pray, and give us a desire to grow. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.